That's a new song, and uh, appreciate the worship team preparing new songs like that so we can lift up a new song in praise to our Lord and Father from time to time. We love the songs that we've sung for a, a great while, and especially those that have been sung by saints for generations, but it is also, um, it's also a blessing to our hearts to be able to sing to God in new ways. And that song's particularly relevant as for the next several weeks, we'll be going through in our Sunday evening service, um, the catechism's instruction to us on how to pray more diligently to the Lord, more accurately, and more aligned with His will. And so uh, I would encourage you, if you've not yet come out to an evening service, it starts at 6 o'clock. Uh, we try to get the sermon done at 7.30 and have some discussion from 7.30 to 8. So if you've got some time to come out to that, we would love to invite you to join us as, uh, as we look at the petitions uh, that the church is to lift up in honor of God's ability to supply our demand. And so uh, please come out on a Sunday night and, and join us. I think you'll be blessed as we not only sing, Thy will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven, but we pray it together as well. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it yet, but there is a repeating process that Hosea has used and will continue to use through the end of his prophecy. Uh, in charge of uh, a guilt is given to the people. They have committed sin. They need to know about that sin, so an indictment is levied against the people. Secondly, there's a plea to repent from that sin that has been made apparent by God's profession. Thirdly, there's a warning of the judgment that flows out of that sin. And then finally, there's this ray of God's gracious hope, which lends the people to turn again their eyes and their ears to the Lord and to hear his instruction on how to be living properly in light of God's grace. This cycle happens repetitively. Beginning with the pattern of Hosea's own marriage to unfaithful Gomer, we saw there a, a charge of plea that Gomer was unfaithful to her husband. We saw also a plea to repent to her. We saw a warning of judgment. In fact, she experienced some of that judgment as her blessings were taken away. But then we saw that ray of hope as Homer, uh, I'm sorry, as Hosea received Gomer back into his home and established a right relationship with her again. And we see that cycle playing out again and again in different ways throughout this book that Hosea has written. You might wonder, why does Hosea repeat this cycle? And it made me think this week about how each one of us who are believers probably have some people in our lives, a couple of folks in particular, who we have preached the gospel to, and we've been trying to be faithful to shine the light of Christ into that person's life. We've taken every opportunity to engage them in conversations about the Word or about our faith or how God has changed our lives, and yet we do not see that individual turning to Christ. What happens when you preach to them and then the gospel seems to fall on deaf ears? Do you give up? Do you say, well, I've done what I was supposed to do and then just move on? No, you continue taking the opportunities that God gives you to testify to the glory of God. You don't try a different message. You might change the approach, but it's still the gospel that that individual needs to hear. Each time you come to them, it might be in a slightly different way with a slightly different emphasis. But your goal and your hope is continually when God gives you opportunity to shine the light of Christ into that person's life and to pray and hope that God will do something with that faithful and consistent testimony that you give to them. You do not stop broadcasting the truth of the gospel and you do not stop doing that in love. And so as we approach the end of this prophecy, we're drawing near to the end of Hosea. That's exactly what Hosea is going to continue to do. He's going to identify the problems that exist in the nation of Israel, particularly the northern kingdom, but also are, that are bleeding down into the southern kingdom. He's going to communicate the urgency for these people to repent of their sin 
and to regroup and to look again to the covenant that has defined their relationship with Yahweh. He's going to line out the consequences of what's going to happen if they refuse to do so, if they neglect these loving warnings that God has given to them. And then again, he's going to give them that ray of hope that reminds those who do not uh, who, who do love Yahweh but have fallen into temptation that He is gracious and forgiving and that as God and Father, He is willing to bring them back. And so we are in Hosea chapter 11 and we're going to see this pattern play out again um, in the course of chapter 11 and 12. We almost finished chapter 11 yesterday, um, but we're going to read the first verse or the last verse rather of chapter 11 because I think it belongs better with what comes at the beginning of chapter 12. So if you've got your Scripture's open. We're going to start with chapter 11, verse 12, and follow into the sixth verse of the next chapter. Thus writes Hosea, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and in, in justice, and wait continually for your God. Let's pray together and ask that the Lord would guide our examination of his word this morning. Almighty God, we do pray, Father, that as you illuminate what you have communicated to us through your prophet Hosea, that we would not be a stiff-necked or hard hearted people, Lord God, that we would not be so proud as to think that the warnings that Israel receives by the word and the pen of Hosea might not also apply to some of us. God, we are saved by grace if we call upon Christ, but we recognize and confess that we are still prone to sin. Our hearts may yet wander from you from time to time, and so we are grateful, Lord God, that you have put the word into our lives as a continual monument to your, to your grace and a continual reminder of us of, that our faith must be based on the things that you have revealed to us through your word. And so help us, God, to understand it well today. Help me to preach this passage with conviction, Lord God, and may it first rest upon my heart even before it reaches the hearts of these men and women who have come to grow as well today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the exposition of the text itself, I do need to point out some issues with the translation of the first verse that we looked at, which is actually that last verse in chapter 11. Uh, most of you know that the Bible that you hold in your lap was not originally written in English. It was written in a couple of ancient languages. The passages in Hosea that we're examining were originally penned in Hebrew. And though we are very extremely blessed to have an abundance of good, solid translations at our, exposure, at our disposal all the time that we can go to and study and seek what God has told to us, these translations from time to time have to make difficult decisions about what one word might particularly mean. Sometimes a word can mean more than one thing. It's not always completely obvious what that word was intended in the original language. So with that in mind, there's a good argument to be made here that the English Standard Version, which we commonly use as a church, 
that their translation of 11.12 is actually not accurate. There aren't any problems with the first half of that verse. Ephraim, as we have seen, is another name that is commonly used for the northern kingdom, especially here by Hosea, um, indicative of the fact that when the northern kingdom broke away from the south, the king that led them was a king whose uh, home was in Ephraim. And so whenever we hear that, it's often talking about the northern kingdom. And they have been consistently disobedient and unfaithful to the covenant. The first half of verse 12 in chapter 11 communicates that accurately in the English Standard Version. But the second half of the verse refers to Judah, the southern kingdom. And according to the English Standard Version translation, this picture of Judah is very favorable. Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, in some ways, historically, Judah was still faithful to the Lord at the time of this writing, although a better description of them might be less disobedient than the north. They weren't particularly accurate in their, in their worship of Yahweh, but they were more accurate than the north was. They weren't particularly dedicated to being holy and set apart from the nations around them, but they were doing a better job of that than their sisters in the north. Judah, however, was guilty of some of the very same sins that Ephraim was guilty of, just to a lesser degree. And so the translation of the second half of the verse hinges on one very important word, and it's the word walks. Judah is said by the ESV to still walk with Yahweh. Now the term for walks in the Hebrew here is the term pronounced rude in the Hebrew. And this is not the normal term that we are used to seeing for someone who is simply walking. The common word for walk in the Hebrew is a term pronounced halak. Now, if you were to read, like for instance, in Exodus 14, 29, about something, somebody walking from one place to another, uh, you would read that term halak. There it is said, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Of course, that passage is referring to the miraculous passage that God afforded to his Servants from Egypt into the, the wilderness as they escaped their slavery. So halak, they simply walked. They used their feet to go from one place to another. But the term that's used here in verse 12 of chapter 11, that term rude, is intended to convey a specific type of walking. When the term rude is used in the Hebrew, it denotes an aimless kind of walking that comes from someone who either doesn't know where they're going or is intentionally avoiding the place they know that they should go. So it is certainly not the term that we would see if we were to read a passage of Scripture that speaks about walking with the Lord. For instance, Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 4, when it says, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The term for walk there is not rude, aimless wandering around. The term there is halak, to walk from one place to another, and to do so according to God's statutes and commands. So that is the normal term that is used. But Hosea is not simply saying that Judah walks with the Lord here. He is saying that Judah is wandering about aimlessly. This is not a picture of someone remaining in lockstep with God. Quite the opposite, actually. What the prophet is saying <clears throat> and what he's trying to portray to us, though the nation of Judah in the south 
is not yet as fixated on the disobedience that the northern kingdom is experiencing. They are guilty of not staying on the course of the covenant. They are beginning to wander as well. They are drawing outside of the lines. And, and so <clears throat> Hosea's indictments and warnings are directed to both the north and to the south in this passage that's going to carry over into chapter 12. A contextual clue that reinforces this reading is found just a few verses later. If Judah walks with the Lord as the ESV wants to render it, then why is it said in verse 12 too so plainly that the Lord has an indictment against Judah? That doesn't seem to match up, does it? That doesn't make contextual sense. So I think we have uh, linguistically the, the meanings of the words match up the New American Standards translation better and the context also matches up the New American Standards version better. So I'm going to share that with you in just a second. So we're going to read this text as a double warning to the complete covenant people, both the north and the south. <clears throat> with the NASB providing our translation for the first verse in the passage, let's read it again. It says, Ephraim sounds, uh, surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is still unruly against God. See how that unruly word communicates the wandering heart that they have against the Lord? Judah is still unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. And then verse 1 of chapter 12, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. So first Ephraim's disobedience is dealt with. And then in verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Now, one of the reasons this distinction is so important <clears throat> is because the content of the last half of the passage has to do <clears throat> with a man named Jacob, a man whom uh, many who have read the Bible are quite familiar with. Starting in verse 3, Hosea begins to use the life of, uh, and history of Isaac's son Jacob as a tool to show both the northern and the southern kingdoms that though they have strayed from the Lord, and have not held fast to the covenant, there is still hope that Yahweh will refine them and bring about some radical change in their lives. Changes that have to happen if they hope to remain near to God and faithful to their covenant promises. So Jacob does not act here as a metaphorical symbol of the northern kingdom only. The way that the Hebrew readers would have thought about Jacob, in fact, who was a forefather of both the northern and the southern Jews, is that within Jacob's loins, through the time that he walked the earth, was the seed of the whole people of Israel. All of them were wrapped up in who he was before he gave birth to his, or his wives gave birth to his sons. And so when Jacob and his wives were responsible for giving birth to the 12 men that would represent the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, it is hereby believed by Israel and Judah that this man, Jacob, is their progenitor. He is the one that came before them and is an ancestor to them. And so when we look at this historical comparison in verses 3 through 6, we need to understand that the whole Old Covenant people of God are in view. Focusing our attention to the first half of our passage, how are the northern and the southern kingdoms, which are in God's eyes really one and the same people, how are they both in danger of God's discipline? So we read there in chapter 11, verse 12, that Ephraim has surrounded God with lies. Now this, this refers to the dishonesty <clears throat> that has become so typical to, to Israel's empty offerings in their worship to Yahweh. 
While the northern kingdom pretends to be innocent of guilt, God does not describe them as being merely negligent or just not doing good enough here. He sees their lack of love for him as a direct attack. The idea of God being surrounded by the lies of Israel should bring to our minds images of a soldier being surrounded by an attacking company or a traveler surrounded by a pack of dangerous wolves. We're going to spend a great deal of time next week analyzing the deceitful tendencies of Israel in their dealings with God, particularly beginning in verse 7 of chapter 12. But Judah, as we have seen in our analysis of the language of verse 11, is not guilty of quite that same level of offense, and yet still is described as wandering off the path. This wandering is the result of the people in the south taking their covenant with Yahweh lightly. Judah was allowing the influence of the pagan nations that neighbored them to begin to influence their thought to the point where they were becoming confused and they were beginning to compromise the way that they were living their lives in obedience to the Lord. They had forgotten that the reason God saved them was not so that they could chart their own course through life, but rather so that, that they might live out obedience to Yahweh in such a way that their lives might become representative of their, the good work that God is doing in them and through them. But their aimless meandering does not reflect the mission that they have been given as a part of their commitment and relationship to God. Now, covenant relationship is a lot of things, but it is not casual. It is not aimless. It is formal. It is directed. It is specific. It is a purposeful connection between two parties with clear stipulations and expectations. And of course, covenants also contain consequences for failing to live up to those expectations. To wander around rather than staying the course of the prescribed path is a direct violation of the covenant between God and his people. And so Judah is not some kind of, of southern darling, some sort of great example that is being lifted up that the north is supposed to follow. Rather, they're considered to be just a few steps behind their erring sisters in the north. They're experiencing many of the same temptations and falling into many of the same distractions as the kingdom to the north of them. But their disobedience just hasn't advanced as far at this point. So chapter 12 continues on with this subject. And that is why we're going to group the last verse of 11 uh, here with chapter 12. Speaking again about Ephraim, Hosea says that the north feeds upon the wind. Now the imagery here is that the people in the northern nation, rather than trusting in their God to provide for their needs, uh, have in desperation sought to quiet their fears and their anxieties about potential threats outside of their borders, by looking to lesser powers than God. Their shaky faith has been exposed by the fact that when there's any kind of substantial threat to them, they do not immediately go to Yahweh, the one who cares for them, the one who restored them from slavery, the one who provided for their needs in the wilderness, the one who gave them a law to live by, the one that time and time again gave them victories over more mighty men and women than them. No, they don't go to that God, but instead they look around desperately, trying to find a source of assistance that seems to their weak hearts to be more tangible, more substantial, more reliable. Consistent with what Hosea has shown us to this point, God's anger is focused on Israel's political infidelity with two particular pagan nations, Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south. <clears throat> and these are the two main sources of earthly comfort that the northern kingdom has tried to draw help from, when in truth they should have been appealing to their own God, Yahweh, who is multitudes mightier than both Assyria and Egypt, and who had already proven to them that whatever they needed, he would be willing and able to provide. 
your greatest security, friends, is not in your bank account. It is not in your ring surveillance system at home. It's not in your insurance policy. It's not in the clean bill of health you got from your doctor last week. Your greatest sense of security is your connection to God Almighty. And that's something that we forget. It's something that Israel in the north had forgotten to such a degree that they were shamefully trying to make friends with anybody who would make friends with them in hopes that they would become a buddy in time of war. But friends, there is, there is no greater connection. There is no greater resource. There is no greater security that you can experience than the knowledge that through Christ Jesus, you have been made right with God, that your sins have been washed away, and the fact that you used to be an enemy to Him has been solved by the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of His willingness to suffer in your place, you have been drawn near to the God of the universe, and you have counsel with Him. And that's one of the beautiful things that we're learning on Sunday evenings about prayer, is that though God is so much above us, though He is so much greater and mightier, that though He is infinite and knows all things, He desires to have communication with you. He wants you and commands you to come to Him and to appeal to His heart and to His mind. He wants you to come and, and share your weakness with Him and your fears so that in speaking to Him, you'll remember that by the grace of God, He has brought you near to Him. What do you need to fear that man can do to you when the God of all creation loves you and has drawn you near to Him? Prayer is such a beautiful and powerful assurance to our hearts. But by pursuing new covenants with the people of the world, the northern kingdom tried to make friends with those who didn't even respect the true God and who were in fact dedicated to false gods of their own design. Israel was breaking the covenant promises that they had made to Yahweh by doing this. They were multiplying falsehood by doubling down on their stubborn habit of trying to get help from those who had no regard for the law of Moses, no regard for the ways of God's covenant people, and these nations would ultimately only manipulate Israel and exploit them for their own national purposes. The oil that is mentioned as being carried to Egypt in verse 1 of chapter 12 probably has to do with the fact that the Middle Eastern palm tree was a source of oil for the ancient people of the time. These particular oil-bearing palms did not grow readily in Egypt. Israel saw this as an opportunity to woo Egypt as an ally. You offer us protection in case that we're attacked by a foreign power and we're going to offer you tribute to, uh, to, in the form of oils that you don't have that we harvest from our abundant palm trees. And so Egypt is trying to strike a deal with these people in the, to the south of them. Egypt, however, would prove to be a false ally. Like the wind, they were there one minute and they were gone the next. Though the allure of political stability and national security was great, aligning themselves with these godless people gave them no substantial benefit in the long run. It was like trying to quench your hunger by consuming the wind. This is the kind of vanity that we often hear described in Solomon's wisdom book in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing more substantial and real than the Creator Himself. Though you cannot reach out and touch Him, the evidence of Him is all around us, and He has revealed Himself to us supernaturally through the Word of God. We are at our most secure when we're finding our strength and our peace by being rooted in Him. When we seek to look to our satisfaction and contentment outside of the boundaries of God, we may find a temporary buzz, a, a little satisfaction for the moment, but that momentary rush will always prove to be nothing more than vanity, a chasing after the wind. 
And so Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, writes in chapter 2, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not restrain my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. So I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I exerted. And behold, all was futility and striving after wind, and there was no benefit under the sun. And so Solomon, who, who, Solomon was the wisest man in, in the world at the time of his life, declares to us that you could explore this firsthand if you want to. You can try to find your peace and your hope in the tangible physical things of this world. And they might for a moment distract you enough to think you have found something. But in the end, all of those things will count as nothing in comparison to your connection to God. In verse 2, there's a dark cloud hanging over Israel's unfaithful pursuit of false covenants with foreigners and Judah's aimless wandering and negligence to the covenants. Despite what the people of the north and the south do or do not do, God remains God, and He will not cease to judge and to enforce the terms of His covenant. So according to their ways, they are sowing seeds of discipline, and God, as the keeper of that covenant, will make sure that a harvest of righteous judgment is reaped upon the north and eventually the south. They will answer for their indiscretions. But remember, friends, the prophetic pattern of Hosea never contains judgment alone. Along with the warnings that Hosea has faithfully delivered to his countrymen, there are reminders of the mercy of their mighty God, challenges to repent, a forecast of God's grace to come. And we begin to see that unfold as we get to verses 3 through 6. So from verses 3 through 6, Hosea will draw the reader's attention to a historical character who factored heavily in God's formation of this covenant people. And this historical character that is shared in common between the north and the south as an ancestor will serve as a picture of what God can and will do in time to grow his people up and change their hearts in such a way that unfaithfulness and deceit are no longer their defining characteristics. This brief historical overview of how God worked through Jacob's life can best be seen in three separate phases. And so in phase one, we see the early life of Jacob. And it begins pretty rough. When you first learn about Jacob, even before he is born, it is told to his mother that he will not be your average child, that there will be something about him that puts him at constant striving and strife with the people around him. Jacob is born a trickster. His name, Jacob in the Hebrew, literally means one who comes upon the heels of another. Picture a small dog nipping at someone else's heels. One who wants to trip somebody else up to take what they have, to overcome them. And so in Genesis 25, we read, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, and Aramean, uh, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And, and so, as a child of promise, Isaac is encountering, in some ways, the same problem that his father and his mother originally had before God covenanted with them. Remember that Abraham and his, water, uh, his wife Sarai could not have children of their own. And here we find Isaac, the child of promise, experiencing the same difficulties. But he did the right thing. He went to the Lord and prayed and asked God to intervene. 
And so now we see a similarly miraculous intervention by God, whereby his promises will be kept and Isaac and his wife are able to conceive. So God is good. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So not only is God willing to give life to Isaac and to his wife, but he gives them two lives. And our brother Trish, our brother Stephen, my sister Trish, have experienced a little bit of this as they've got two foster babies instead of one right now, a little boy and a little girl. So be praying for Mia and for Trey as they are experiencing firsthand without much preparation what it's like to have two little babies in the home at once. These two babies that were in the womb of, uh, of Rebecca, they were striving against each other even before they came into this world. They represented two nations in her womb, two peoples from within her. And one, she is told prophetically, will be stronger than the other. But it's not the one she guesses will be stronger. The older will actually serve the younger. And so she's rightfully confused. If God is miraculously providing for her, then how and why would he go turn around and then let conflict and, 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 and hardship potentially hinder this pregnancy? But God not only allows conflict in the lives of those he loves, he intends to use that conflict as a means of revealing himself and growing his people closer to him. So what do we see here? We see first that God has every intention of keeping his promises to his people. The two boys that Rebecca would soon deliver will each go on to form great and mighty nations indeed. The promise to Abraham would not end at Isaac, but would expand and grow until the nations of the world are blessed. So God has every intention of keeping his promises. Secondly, we see that the blessing of the nations of the world would be carried out not by both of these twins, but by one. The child that Rebecca would bear, the children that Rebecca would bear would go in two different directions. So Esau would father the nation of the Edomites, but Jacob would be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And through these 12 tribes, the world would see the covenant played out on a much large, larger scale than had been displayed up to this point. Through this bloodline, the solution to sin and death would eventually come. The seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent as had been prophesied in Genesis 3. And that seed would be born into the world through the line of Jacob's, particularly through Jacob's fourth son, Judah. Thirdly, we see that God's sovereign choice to bring about his covenant promises by way of the least likely son reminds us that the promises to Abraham would be carried out by the sovereignty of God, not by the ability or the power or the wisdom of man. We see again and again in God's scripture that he is not ashamed to use the weaker vessel to accomplish his deeds. God often chooses a human being who would seem like the least likely candidate for success. And in doing so, he makes it more readily obvious to those who see this play out in their lives that it is God's power at work in that person who is creating the victory, not the person's skill on their own. This is, as we might say, a showcase of God's grace, that he chooses weak vessels through which his glory might shine all the more brightly. Jacob is a man who's going to live to be characterized from the very beginning as a man of struggle. He does not simply accept the natural order of things. He exerts great energy to change the course of his life. He is willing to put himself at odds with others. 
in order to accomplish what he intends to do. And this inevitably threatens to put Jacob at odds with the Lord. He must learn to receive what is ordained by God's sovereign hand. No man can force his will over God. And so continuing on in, uh, in Genesis, it says in verse 24 of Genesis 25, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, just as it had been prophesied. The first came out red. All his body looked like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And after his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Recognize that God is using these series of events in such a way that they will surely bring about his will. This second son, Jacob, <clears throat> is so named because of the way that he came out of the womb right on the heels of his older brother. In fact, we are told that he was literally holding his brother's foot when he came through. The name Jacob is a fitting title then, since it literally means one who's on the heels of another. This word Jacob was a name that was often given to someone who had the intention of overtaking someone else, often by way of cunning or trickery. And so we need to remember that Rebecca had been given insight into the lives of her children by an angel. So her name for Jacob was not coincidental. It was in line with what God had revealed to her. As grown men, years later, Isaac favored Esau, his firstborn, in part because Esau was a great hunter and he provided the kinds of things that gave a smile to Esau's face, the kind of game and food that he liked to eat. Esau was masculine. He was strong. He was in some ways like a prototypical firstborn son. And he was the one that you would have guessed if you had to uh, figure out who the line of, of Israel was going to go through. You would think that it was going to go through Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, was more loved by his mother. He spent more time indoors and was more of a shepherd than a hunter. In Genesis 25, <clears throat> we see how it is recorded that there was a famous shift in birthright between the two brothers. And I'm not going to go back and read all this for you because of time restraints. But in summary... Esau, a mighty hunter, was out in the field and he had been on an expedition whereby he caught nothing and had exhausted his energies. He comes back to home and as he enters the borderlands of the camp, Jacob is already there, perhaps to take advantage of him. He's been laboring over a red lentil stool. He's been cooking some food there, uh, exercising his domestic muscle. And so when Esau comes up and he is absolutely famished, he is, uh, in his mind, dying of hunger, he petitions his brother for some of this stew. He begs that his brother might give him relief by sharing this meal with him. But Jacob wants to know what's in it for me. He's got something in mind, in fact. And he says to his brother Esau, I know you're the firstborn, but listen, I would like your birthright. <clears throat> I want to be the firstborn of this family. I want to carry on the family name and I want to be the patriarch. Sell me your birthright and I'll give you this stew. Esau, in one of the most short-sighted responses we've seen in Scripture, says, I'm basically going to die anyway, so what good is a birthright to me? And he agrees and swears to give his birthright to his brother. He enjoys a bowl of stew and a loaf of bread and a side dish of regret, I have no doubt. Esau is described here as having despised his birthright, and that has more to do with his unwillingness to honor his birthright. I don't think that Esau hated his birthright, but he treated it in a despicable way. 
By manipulation and cunning, Jacob advances his position. But it came at a great cost. Esau would not forget about this dishonor that had been done to him by his brother. And though he despised his birthright in that moment, he would later lament the loss of that birthright and the blessings that come along with it from their father Isaac. He would grow to harbor great bitterness in his heart towards his brother, and it would create a divide between the two of them. Jacob fled from Esau, believing that Esau wanted to do him great harm. Their families were separate. And in the process of trying to move his flocks away and his family to safety, we might read in Genesis 32 that Jacob found himself camped alone one night. And in that time of isolation, he experienced a divine encounter, which is going to lead us to the second phase of his life. First phase, the early phase, we see the trickery of Jacob, the natural heart of the man who is always at conflict with others and trying to get what was not rightfully his. In the second phase of life, we see growth through struggles. Genesis chapter 32 begins like this. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. That man wasn't just a man, folks. That man was someone sent of God. An angel, in fact, grappled with Jacob, this man. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then the angel said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the angel said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. One of the most interesting stories that I read as a youth, not knowing exactly what was going on here, and we don't get a whole lot of details about how this came about or how this angel came upon Jacob or who attacked who first. That's not the point of the story. Uh, I like to train in jiu-jitsu, which is a grappling martial art, and so I, I always wish that they put more details about this epic grappling match, which lasted through the night and into the morning hours always intrigued by this passage, but there really aren't any details of the battle, and really what matters more is the conflict and the negotiations at the end of the conflict. We simply learn that after an extended battle, the two figures are at a stalemate. Some try to pass this off as a dream or a vision, but the results of the conflict are much too physical and literal for that. This stubborn behavior that we see from Jacob is consistent with his early character, isn't it? As we have seen, Jacob was not prone to accept his place, but was rather often looking to get something better, even if that meant taking it from someone else. He does the same thing here, but again, it costs him. And this time, he has a lesson that needs to be learned. In the midst of their contest, the angel of the Lord touches Jacob's hip and gives him an injury that he will literally carry with him through the rest of his life. A physical reminder of what opposition to the Lord can bring. Jacob learns the hard way that struggling against the Lord will leave you injured. Sometimes I wish that God would do that to us when we fall into sin, that he would hurt us in such a way that we always had a physical reminder of that sin for the rest of our lives. Sometimes we sin and the Lord punishes us in a spiritual way and we feel the sting of it for a time, but then there's no lingering effect and so we fall back into our sin Jacob was in some ways blessed by this injury because he could not forget what he had done that night when the angel appeared to him. And this is a lesson that Hosea needs to teach to the northern kingdom of Israel, isn't it? Haven't the northern kingdom, like Jacob, been unwilling to accept the terms of God's relationship with them? 
Haven't they struggled against God? Mightily, right? Haven't they tried to get more than they deserve? Absolutely. They have, they have acted uh, presumptuously in the sight of their God. And the judgments that we have been reading about are the appropriate injury that God intends to render unto them in order to teach them this kind of rebellion and trickery is not in their best interest. Now understand, Jacob takes more than an injury from that battle. As the dawn draws near, the angel tells Jacob to let him go. But Jacob, recognizing that this angel is of God, cries out, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Was Jacob a little surprised that he was able to hold his own in this battle? I don't know. But since he's got a hold of this angel, he's not going to relinquish his grip until he gets some kind of a blessing from the Lord. And one thing to notice from this account in verse 27, what does the angel require of Jacob before he gives Jacob a blessing? He asks him a very pointed question. He says, what is your name? This is more than just a formality when you consider the nature of Jacob's name, right? Jacob, by saying his name, I am the one who holds the heel. I am the trickster. I am the conniver, the cunning one. By saying his name out loud, Jacob is required to admit to the angel who he is. In some sense, it is a confession of his sinful nature. It's a confession of his natural trickery, that he is the one who is known as a deceiver. And so this confession marks a turning point of sorts for Jacob, as he has been forced to face the consequences of living according to his fallen nature and his selfish tendencies, both the consequences of his broken relationship with Esau and the lingering pain of the hip injury he sustains from this battle. And as God has done in a couple of other notable instances, the blessing that Jacob receives here is a new name to correspond with this confession of his sinful nature. He will no longer be called Jacob, trickster, overtaker. Now he will be called Israel, which takes the emphasis off of him and puts it onto Yahweh. Israel means God strives. In other words, God is the one who battles on my behalf. There is one last reference to this story in Hosea 12. We see it in verse 4, where Hosea writes, He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Remember I told you earlier that both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom would have believed that in Jacob's life, the totality of the 12 tribes existed in his loins. So when it says, there God spoke with us, it's referring to the fact that though God spoke to Jacob there, that it was a message for all the people that would come from Jacob. Verse 5, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. Now this last reference points forward to a third phase of Jacob's life, his later life, which would be marked by maturity that came in submission to Yahweh. Jacob's wrestling match with the angel occurred at the Jabbok crossing on the Jordan River, a place very close proximity to Bethel, that city that carried such significance to the northern kingdom, didn't it? Bethel was the place that Israel had erected this golden calf, a place that was supposed to be established for the worship of Yahweh, but turned into a center for idolatry. And so Hosea is pointing the people back to the history of what God had done at that place. And he pleads with them to consider the transformation that God brought about in Jacob's life, turning him from a man of rebellion to a man of obedience and devotion. God has spoken to us at this place before, insists Hosea. And what did God say at that time? Through the life of Jacob, he was saying the same thing 
that he is saying to the northern kingdom now. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. This is that shining beam of light that comes down through the darkness of this indictment that the northern and southern kingdoms had been earning for themselves as they rebelled against God. So you, by the help of your God, return. Repentance is still possible for those who trust in Yahweh. Both the north and the south are falling short of their covenant commitments to their God. But here we have evidence laid out for Israel that God does not redeem a people without transforming them, without conforming them to his will and making them something new that they could not make themselves into before. And so again, Hosea is issuing a call to repentance for this northern kingdom. Return, turn against your sin and turn back to this covenant God who loves you so. Hold fast. No longer hold loosely to the things of God. Don't just meander around aimlessly, but set the course and walk the path that God has laid out for you. Pursue him with love and with justice and wait continually on the Lord. No longer be anxious of soul, poor of faith, unwilling to believe that God is sovereign over not only the results, but the timing of it. Trust that God is making you into what you need to be. And so importantly, he declares to them that this can only happen by the help of their God. What do we see at work here in the typology of Jacob's life? We see God's power to transform those whom he brings into covenant with himself. Israel's not chosen by God because they were a faithful people to begin with. They are made a faithful people by the God who chose them. This is in every way consistent with the God who saves today. The preaching of the gospel is not intended to fall upon those who have the intelligence and the strength to hear of their sin. It's not meant for those who can pick themselves up in response to their sin and make the necessary adjustments to refine and reform themselves. Rather, the gospel has its aim as the unworthy, incompetent sinner. The gospel hits square between the eyes of the person who doesn't even want to change their life. But God comes in and interrupts them and helps them to understand the danger that their sin has put them in. The one who is unable to change themselves for the better and recognizes in truth that apart from the intervention of God, they are without hope and without redemption is the one upon whom the gospel seed truly rests. God takes such a one as this and through often humbling and difficult means, through struggle and strife, God will help them to see the severity of their condition the Apostle Peter, for example, thought he was more devoted to Christ than he was. He denied his Savior three times in the midst of Jesus' most vulnerable hour. He didn't deserve salvation, but God strives with his people, and God strove with Peter. Over time, there was a redemption. The, resurrection, uh, the resurrected Jesus rather met with Peter and three times allowed him to, to be reaffirmed, three times told Peter that he would indeed accomplish God's will for his life, that he would feed the sheep of God. Peter was not cast away forever, but was refined and matured through process of his failure and went on to demonstrate a faithful ministry unto the Lord. The Apostle Paul was worse than a trickster. He was a murderer of Christians, an enemy to the church, committed to the destruction of the early covenant people. But God humbled him on the road to Damascus and God strove with Paul and transformed him into a missionary of the gospel, a church planter and a defender of the faith. But redemption doesn't have to end in some, someone, uh, some kind of comparative greatness for us. 
every saint who is counted as a child of the one true God was a breaker of the law of God, was a worker of iniquity before the double-edged sword of God's holy word pierced through bone and marrow and cut us to the heart. It is not easy to bear the truth of our sin, but it is such a comfort to us to hear that our shame can and will be overcome, not by our own striving or our own steadfast will or our accurate keeping of the law, but by the power of God who does not turn away from those whom he draws to himself. Let us be grateful, friends, that this God, who is a God of truth, is also a God of great and amazing grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your wonderful patience. We thank you for the mercy that you have displayed to your people. And we know that even though the northern kingdom lost its sovereignty as a nation, that many there in that kingdom who still loved you would would soldier on. And in the coming of Christ, there would be a call for those who, who still look upon Yahweh as king, to receive the Savior that he had sent. We're so grateful that that call went beyond the ethnic borders of Israel and that Gentiles were also invited to receive this faith. All who would trust upon Christ are welcomed into the family of God now. And so God, let us marvel at the fact that those whom you save, you do not simply keep from punishment. Those whom you redeem, you do not just spare from hell. Those whom you redeem through walking with you and striving with you, are refined, are made something different than what they were before. As Jacob had begun a trickster and a deceiver, a cunning man, you made him into a new man. You gave him the title Israel to show him that you indeed would walk with him and would make him what he could not make himself. And so we're grateful for the same process at work in the life of believers here today. Let your church be a place where discipleship occurs where those who have called upon your name can come and learn and grow, and where the the remnants of our life of rebellion to you can be carefully and sometimes slowly pruned away that we might more accurately represent the kind of glory that your Son brought to this earth in full obedience to your word. We praise you for Christ, and we're thankful, Lord God, for the identity that we have in him, and we pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.